start the lecture. So the lecture today is about pharmacogenetics, now sometimes also called pharmacogenomics. Can you hear me well? Does this sound good? No. Eh? It's too low. Can we please have some a bit, a bit louder? Okay, thank you. So this is about the effect of genetics on the way people respond to drugs. Let's start with a little question reviewing things we saw on Tuesday. Just a little calculation to warm up. Okay, so 10 hours, about four half-lives, we are at steady state, no, 94% of steady state, so the answer is 40 hours, four half-lives. Okay, so what's the idea about this lecture? So we have a wide variety of drugs that can be used to treat many diseases. However, people respond very differently. So there are big inter-individual variations in the way people respond to drug therapy. And this variation may range from adverse effects that can be severe to lack of therapeutic efficacy, meaning for some people the standard dose is too high, so they have adverse effects. For some people the standard dose is too low, so it's below the therapeutic window. So basically we can have these possibilities. Now, so let's say you have a group of patients with the same diagnosis, for example, you know, high cholesterol, angina, heart failure, hypertension, and they are given the same prescription, okay, the same drug. And you see some people, for example, the drug is toxic, but beneficial, so they have good effect and bad effects. For these people, the drug is not toxic and not beneficial. It doesn't do anything for them. For some people, the drug is toxic, but not beneficial. These are the most screwed up people. They get only the bad effects and no good effects. And these are the happy people. They get the beneficial effects and not toxic effects. Obviously, this is an oversimplification, but you know, combinations of these outcomes happen all the time. Some people have more adverse effects, some people have less, some people benefit more from a drug, some people benefit less. So why is that? What are the factors that may influence what is called the drug response 
phenotype, meaning the way people respond to drugs. Well, age, gender, disease, and genetic variation. So this is a topic of this lecture, how genetic variation affects the way people respond to drugs. So this is what is called pharmacogenetics or pharmacogenomics, the study of the role of inheritance in variations in the way people respond to drugs. This is important because, as you probably know, adverse reactions, adverse effects of drugs, then are a major cause of morbidity and mortality. Now, some people die of the disease and some people die of the drugs they are given for the disease because of the toxic effects. So, a little bit about the genetic background to this story. So, if you get any two people, you see that they differ on average about one nucleotide per 1,000 nucleotides. Okay, so the average inter-individual difference is three million base pairs. So this is basically you know, what makes you you and not a clone of somebody else. This is a genetic individuality. And some of these differences, these genetic differences, are the explanation of why people respond differently to drugs. So, and this brings us to what is called personalized or individualized medicine, meaning that if we know uh, the DNA sequence of people, then we can optimize the dosage regimens. Now, what we mentioned the other day, you know, the dosage regimen, we can optimize them to optimize the efficacy and reduce the adverse effects of the drug. Okay, so what are the types of genetic variation? We saw this slide on Tuesday no? or Monday. So three types of genetic variation can have an impact on the way people respond to drugs. <laughs> the first one is what is called pharmacokinetic variation. So the variation in proteins involved in drug metabolism and drug transport. For example, all the P450 enzymes and the P glycoprotein transporter. Then the pharmacodynamic variation is variation in the drug targets, you know, receptors, ion channels, and so on. And finally, variation in proteins associated with idiosyncratic adverse drug effects. These are proteins which are not involved in metabolism or transport or the drug targets. are different things, and so people with, with polymorphisms in these proteins will have adverse effects that other people don't have. So it's not just that they respond more or less, but they will have qualitatively uh, potential different adverse effects to drugs. We will see examples. So just to remind you where we are, no? so when we talk about pharmacokinetics, variation, we talk about you know, absorption, distribution, elimination, and pharmacodynamic, we talk about the effect of the drug. So the most common type of genetic variation is the variation in the enzymes that metabolize drugs. Now, basically all the major enzymes that are involved in metabolism, you know, the CYP3A4, CYP2D6, and so on, they are very polymorphic. So somebody may have a, a, a fast enzyme with high activity that metabolizes drugs fast, and somebody else may have a, 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 an allele, a, a type of uh, polymorphic enzyme 
that it has weak activity and therefore they are slow metabolizers. So we're going to see examples of all the different types of genetic variations that affect the way people respond to drugs. First, let's see the pharmacokinetic variation that, as we mentioned, is probably the most important one in terms of numbers. So we're going to see the genetic polymorphisms of these <coughs> four enzymes which are involved in drug metabolism. Butyrylcholinesterase, also called pseudocholinesterase, and acetyltransferase 2, cytochrome P450 to the 6, and the thiopurin S-methyltransferase, TPMT. These are four important enzymes that metabolize a number of drugs. So, first example, butyrylcholinesterase polymorphism, okay? I need to introduce you know, a few drugs that are important and are metabolized by this enzyme and explain the clinical consequences. No? So there's a class of drugs that you're going to mention briefly when you see autonomic drugs in a few days called the neuromuscular blockers. Okay, everybody knows curare, no? The, the thing that, you know, basically paralyzes you and you're conscious, but you cannot move your muscles. So all these things are basically derivatives and analogs of curare. So they are used during surgical procedures to cause what is called muscle paralysis, you know, paralysis of the voluntary muscles, so that the patient doesn't shake around during the operation, and then you ventilate them, and so on. One of these drugs is called succinylcholine, okay? And it's what is called a depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. So succinylcholine is actually an agonist, very much like acetylcholine, which is the endogenous ligand for the receptor, so activates the receptor in the neuromuscular junction and activates it. But eventually, because it's not quickly metabolized at the synapse, it stays there, and then the receptor depolarizes and gets, uh, remains depolarized and the receptor desensitizes. So eventually, after a, a, a few seconds of activation, you get actually an antagonism and you get flaccid paralysis. So you get complete uh, blockade of the muscle. You get muscle relaxation. Mm -hmm. This drug is very fast acting, you know, usually within one minute. Mm -hmm. And also the duration of action is short, not more than 10 minutes, because in the plasma, we have an enzyme called the butyrylcholinesterase, also called pseudocholinesterase, that breaks it down. So this is a blockade that is fast and, and short and usually is used for uh, procedures that require something fast and short, for example, endotracheal intubation. So some people have a polymorphism in this enzyme, the enzyme that breaks down succinylcholine, and these uh, polymorphic enzymes are weak, are slow, so that they will not break down succinylcholine as fast as people with a wild type allele, and therefore these people will, instead of coming, uh, recovering mobility after 10 minutes, will recover it after maybe half an hour, an hour, two hours, depending on how weak 
the enzyme is. The cause of this is defects on the butyryl cholinesterase enzyme gene. No? So this gene is polymorphic. And the condition is transmitted as an autosomal recessive trait. Basically, all the genetic uh, disorders involving enzymes are autosomal recessive. Mm -hmm. So I'm showing you this little diagram, and I want you to look at it, digest it, and familiarize yourself with this type of diagram. Basically, all the pharmacogenetic studies are presented in a similar way. So this is a study with 135 people, okay? And so here they plot the number of people in the y-axis, and here on the x-axis, they plot something that basically reflects the activity of the butyryl cholinesterase. The dibucaine number, what does it mean? Dibucaine is a local anesthetic, okay? But this is completely irrelevant here. They found that dibucaine inhibits the butyryl cholinesterase enzyme, okay? But inhibits very well the Y-type enzyme, the normal enzyme, and not very well the atypical enzyme, okay, the polymorphic enzyme. So they found that if they throw the same dose at different enzymes, the normal enzyme will be inhibited 75% or more. So they say the dibucaine number is 75 or higher. If you have 50-50, so you are heterozygous to the atypical enzyme, so you have 50% atypical, 50% white type, then the dibucaine number will be between 40 and 70, so that the enzyme will be inhibited between 40 and 70%. And if you have only the atypical enzyme, so you are homozygous for the polymorphic enzyme, dibucaine will inhibit only 20% or less, okay? So in that way, they identify who has which enzyme. So by the dibucaine number, you can see that most people are this blue group here, are homozygous for the normal enzyme, the wild type. These people in the middle are heterozygous, they have 50-50, and these people at the bottom here, they are homozygous for the atypical enzyme. So these people probably, if they are given succinylcholine, they will take a long time to recover mobility because they have only the weak enzyme, okay? Mm -hmm. Second example of an enzyme involved in metabolism is the N-acetyl <coughs> transferase 2, okay? As the name indicates, this enzyme transfers acetyl groups. And in that way, it metabolizes a number of drugs. So metabolize the drugs by acetylation. You will remember from the class on Monday, we talked about phase one, phase two. Phase two in, involved conjugation with things like acetate and so on. So this is a typical phase two type of enzyme. So it conjugates drugs with acetyl, and in that way makes them more polar and inactive. The polymorphism of this enzyme was originally identified uh, by 
the metabolism of isoniazid, which is a drug used for TB, for tuberculosis, very much in use today. They found that when people were given isoniazid, some people had, with the same dose, some people had low levels of the drug in blood, some people had high levels of the drug in blood. And they found that the people who had high levels were slow acetylators, okay? So they metabolize isoniazid slowly, and therefore the blood levels of isoniazid are, are high. The facetylator metabolize the drug quickly, and therefore they have low blood levels. So, and they found that this was a genetic thing. So the rate of acetylation of isoniazid is inherited. The slow acetylators are homozygous for an autosomal recessive allele of the enzyme that has low activity. And here you have the diagram. This is a much simpler diagram. So they are plotting subjects versus the concentration of isoniazid itself. Okay, it's a very straightforward thing. So they give people a dose of the drug, then they take samples of the blood and they see the concentration of isoniazid. And you see, these people are fast acetylators, and these people are slow acetylators. So slow acetylators are homozygous for the polymorphic enzyme with low activity. Some people here have you know, very low activity. Why is this important? Well, many drugs are metabolized by this enzyme, and people who are facilitators, because the blood levels are high, will have more incidence of adverse effects you know, with a standard dose. You know, of, and this goes to basically any drug that is metabolized by acetylation. And I'm going to mention a couple. Isoniazid, obviously, normally, facilitators have more incidence of neuropathy and hepatotoxicity. Hydralazine and procainamide, two drugs that probably you're not going to see this term. Hydralazine is an antihypertensive, procainamide is an antiarrhythmic. Uh, they may cause lupus, no? so it's a systemic lupus erythematosus, which is drug induced. Now, usually, uh, when you see that a drug may cause lupus, is typically a drug metabolized by acetylation, no? and the lupus normally occurs in people who are slow acetylators. Some sulfas may cause hypersensitivity, so rashes, for example, hemolytic anemia and lupus in people mainly, who not only, but people who are slow acetylators. No? Okay. This is a newer example, the CYP2-6. Now, the butyricoinesterase, the acetyltransferase, these are polymorphisms that have been known for decades. The CYP2D6 is something a bit more recent. As you know, the 2D6 is a member of the superfamily of the P450 enzyme. And particularly, we, we mentioned the other day the 3A4 as the superstar of the P450, but the 2D6 is also very important. Metabolizes many drugs, antidepressants, antiarrhythmics, analgesics, you know, quite a few different drugs and different classes of drugs. Okay. So originally, they discovered the polymorphism of this 2D6 enzyme 
looking at the metabolism of two drugs, the brisoquine and spartane. These two drugs are no longer in the market, but they are still important because as experimental drugs, they allowed us to discover the polymorphism of CYP26. So this uh, graph shows what happened when they gave this drug, the brisoquine, to different people, okay? So here, as you can see, the, the, the format of this picture is similar. So you have number of subjects here. But here they did something a bit more clever. Instead of just putting the plasma level of the brisoquine, they put the ratio of the brisoquine and its major metabolite, which is 4-hydroxy the brisoquine. So if you are a fast metabolizer, then there will be in your blood less, no, little of the debrisoquine, which is a parent drug, and a lot of the metabolite. So the ratio will be low. If you are a slow metabolizer, your blood will show high debrisoquine, little metabolite. So the ratio will be high. When they did that, they basically broke down the people into three groups. The majority of people you see here are extensive metabolizers, okay? Wide majority. Then you have a number of poor metabolizers, but then you have some ultra-rapid metabolizers that have a ratio even down to 0.01, okay? So why, what's, the, what's the explanation for this? Well, the poor metabolizers are homozygous for enzymes with low activity, okay? So they have... No, the two alleles are low-activity enzymes. The extensive metabolizers are either heterozygous, so 50-50, or homozygous for the white type. So they have both alleles white type or one and one. But what's the explanation for the ultra-rapid metabolizers? Do they perhaps have a super-fast enzyme? No, they have several copies of the enzyme. So the enzyme is the same as the wild type, but they have many copies of the gene. So they make more copies of the enzyme, okay? Some people can have up to 13 copies of the gene, so they are very fast metabolized. Now, what is the clinical relevance of this? Well, uh, the 2D6 metabolizes, as we mentioned, many very important uh, drugs. For example, metoprolol is a beta blocker used for hypertension, haloperidol, an antipsychotic, codeine and dextrometorphan are opioids, uh, the antidepressant fluoxetine, which is Prozac, imipramine, etc. So a whole bunch of different classes of drugs. So if you're a poor metabolizer, what happens? You may suffer adverse effects when given a standard dose of one of these drugs, for example, metoprolol. Now, metoprolol is a beta blocker. You know, if you give too much of it, may have you know, detrimental effects on your cardiac function. But interestingly, codeine. Now, codeine is an analgesic, and it's mainly a prodrug. Now, it's not 100%, but it's a prodrug in the sense that it's a rather weak agonist. We mentioned uh, what a prodrug is the other day. Hmm? So codeine is actually converted in your body by metabolism into morphine. 
So the analgesic effects of codeine are mainly a consequence of the morphine form in your body. And who converts codeine into morphine? The CYP2D6. So if you are a poor metabolizer, you're not going to convert codeine into morphine too much, and therefore a standard dose of codeine may be ineffective for you. Okay? The other extreme is the ultra-rapid metabolizers. These people may need very high doses of drugs like metoprolol, for example, in order to get a therapeutic effect. But on the other hand, when you are given codeine, they may overdose because they convert codeine too much into morphine, and then they may suffer the adverse effects of the opioids like morphine, which is, for example, respiratory depression, respiratory arrest in response to a standard dose of codeine, okay? And then we come to the final example of a metabolized enzyme, which is the TPMT, okay? This enzyme is rather specific for the metabolism of a class of drugs, a class of anti-cancer drugs called the thiopurines. Now, the thiopurines are basically analogs of purines that fool the enzymes in the cancer cells and so on and kill eventually. The, you make non-functional DNA, non-functional RNA, you kill the cell. The two important ones are these two, 6-mercaptopurine and azathioprine. You, you see here mercaptopurine, basically what they've done is grab a purine and replace the oxygen by a sulfur. So it's an analog of a purine. So the enzyme TPMT metabolizes these drugs by methylation. That's why it's a methyltransferase enzyme, and therefore inactivates them. So as you can imagine, anti-cancer drugs tend to be not very safe drugs. They tend to have a narrow therapeutic index so that you have to be very careful how much you give because you have adverse effects. Typically, bone marrow suppression, okay? So one in 300 people are homozygous for a polymorphism of the TPMT with low activity, okay? So these people are at very increased risk for bone marrow suppression when you give them a standard dose of the drug. And they have to be given about 10% of the standard dose, so a much lower dose. So and this picture shows this, this uh, polymorphism. Here they are, they are basically plotting subjects divided by unit, doesn't matter, but considered subjects. And here they are actually showing an in vitro study. You know? So they're taking actually samples of the people and, and, and measure actually the activity in vitro of DPMT. So you can see here the three groups. You know, the wide majority of people in blue are homozygous for the high activity enzyme, the H, TPMTH. So they have both of the Y-type alleles. People here in the middle are heterozygous, so they have 50-50, and this is the one in 300 that they have, they're homozygous 
for the low activity and they have to be given a very low dose, otherwise they have high risk of bone marrow suppression, okay? Okay, so this is the pharmacokinetic variation. There's also pharmacodynamic variation, variation in drug targets. This variation can be in the targets themselves or in some protein downstream from the target. For example, let's say in the G protein, in the adenyl cyclase, protein kinase, say somewhere downhill from the receptor. But we're going to see actually an example of a drug in which you see both variations coming together, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic. So multiple genes affecting this. And the example we're going to give is warfarin. That we mentioned before, warfarin tends to be a bit of a superstar of any pharmacology course because of all the complexities that the prescription of warfarin has. So it's the most widely prescribed oral anticoagulant, and it has a narrow therapeutic window, okay? And wide inter-individual variability. So it's the, the dosing can be problematic. You have to be very careful, start low, and try not to be too high. If you under-anticoagulate, so you give too little, you can have thrombosis. And if you over-anticoagulate, you can have hemorrhage, bleeding episode. Have to be very careful. Okay. So warfarin, structurally, is a racemic mixture. You have S and R warfarin. S warfarin is actually three to five times more potent than they are. And interestingly, the two stereoisomers, S and R, are metabolized by different enzymes. Hmm? See, the S warfarin has been much more studied, and the metabolism is much simpler. Basically, it's done by the CYP2C9, okay? But the R warfarin is more complicated. So there are many P450 isozymes involved. You have a 2C19, 1A2, 1A1, 3A4, 2C9, 2C8, etc. It's very complicated. So imagine, you know, if all these uh, enzymes are polymorphic, and some people have a fast one, a slow one, you know, the inter-individual variability is going to be very substantial. So the 2C9, which is the most carefully studied, is very polymorphic. So some people have a, an allele with very low activity as compared to the wild type. People with these variant alleles require low doses of warfarin, you know, and therefore they are more at risk of hemorrhage if given too much. But that's not the whole story. There's also a pharmacodynamic element. So what is the molecular <coughs> target for warfarin. It's called the vitamin K epoxide reductase, okay? You haven't seen the coagulation cascade yet, no? Okay, so this is a, a, a sneak preview, okay? So the coagulation cascade or clotting cascade is made up by a number of what we call factors most of them are enzymes. Now, we're not going to get into detail now, <laughs> but the story is that, like many other proteins, when they come out of the ribosomes, you've seen 
transcription and translation. Huh? Yes, good. When proteins tend to come out of the ribosomes, many proteins are immature. Okay, they are non-functional, and they need what is called a post-translational modification to mature into a functional protein. This is the case with some of the coagulation factors. So imagine here, this is a clotting factor precursor, and this symbolizes the polypeptide chain. And this is one of many glutamate residues in the polypeptide chain. Part of the maturation of these uh, clotting factors is that they need an extra carboxyl group. See, glutamate, as you know, has one carboxyl group here. You need a second one in order for the clotting factor to become functional. Okay, and who adds that carboxyl group? The enzyme gamma glutamyl carboxylase. Okay, this enzyme uses oxygen, CO2, and as coenzyme uses vitamin K. That's why vitamin K is important in coagulation because it's a coenzyme for the carboxylase. So the carboxylase carboxylates these clotting factors, then they become mature and functional, and as it happens, the coenzyme changes, you know, gets affected and emerges as an oxidized version of itself the vitamin K epoxide. You need then to re-reduce the vitamin K back to the vitamin K reduced form, which is the only form that acts as coenzyme. And for that, you have a second enzyme, which is the vitamin K epoxide reductase, that using NADH re-reduces vitamin K, okay? So warfarin, no, acts as an anticoagulant by inhibiting this enzyme. So you block the vitamin K in the epoxide form and you deprive the carboxylate of its coenzyme. So carboxylate cannot carboxylate the clotting factor. Clotting factor remain non-functional, immature. That is how warfarin acts as an anticoagulant, but basically freezing some clotting factors in the non-functional state, okay? So the gene that encodes this enzyme is called the vitamin K phosphoreductase complex one, okay? And it's also very polymorphic, okay? So some of it shows less an affinity for warfarin, so it's less affected, some of it is more, okay? So here we have what happens, you know? All these P450s are polymorphic, plus the reductase is polymorphic. So this may give rise to huge inter-individual variability. And in fact, if you look at the daily dose of warfarin required by different people to achieve the same, the same level of anticoagulation, the variability is huge. Some people need half a milligram a day while well, some people need about 20 milligrams a day. This is crazy. There's no other drug uh, in use today that displays such a wide range of variability. Hmm? And this is a consequence of all these polymorphisms. <laughs> okay, and finally, we get to the story of the idiosyncratic drug effects. Hmm? So this means that there 
proteins not involved in the being drug targets or metabolism, which are polymorphic. So the first example is something that I bet you have seen or are about to see, which is the enzyme glucose phosphate dehydrogenase, which is the most important enzyme in one uh, metabolic pathway called the pentose phosphate pathway. Okay, are you about to see that? Have you seen it? Yes, yes, good. Excellent. So this enzyme basically grabs glucose phosphate, converts it into phosphogluconate, and in the process produces NADPH, which is reducing power, okay? This enzyme works in tandem with the glutathione reductase to maintain glutathione reduced. Remember, we live in an environment full of oxygen. It's a very oxidizing environment. So continually, our cells have to be basically, you know, mopping up uh, oxygen radicals that will otherwise oxidize the cells, particularly the red blood cells. So the reductase uses the NADPH to keep glutathione reduced, and then the peroxidase grabs things like oxygen peroxide, uh, hydrogen peroxide radicals, and converts them into, you know, non-harmful things like water. So the three enzymes are needed, but the main source of NADPH is the dehydrogenase, okay? So if you have a weak enzyme, then you're not going to form enough NADPH, and you need the NADPH to keep the pool of glutathione reduced. Now, if you have then reduced NADPH, you cannot detoxify the free radicals, and peroxide and radicals will form within the cell, and therefore will uh, start destroying the red blood cell. There are many polymorphisms of the glucose hydrogenase. Now, the thing is, some people may have a polymorphism of this enzyme with maybe, let's say, 70% of activity. So you can go through life never knowing that you actually have this gene issue, this deficiency. But if they give you one day a drug that is oxidizing, so it will put oxidative stress on you, then the NADPH will not be enough to protect you. And you have an episode of hemolytic anemia, okay? Because the red blood cells are the first to go because they don't have mitochondria. They don't have any other source of NADPH. Drugs that produce oxidative stress can be some sulfas, antimalarials, and chloramphenicol. These are a few examples. There are many more. And I'm sure that you read the issue of the fava beans. Fava beans also are oxidizing. So people who have a weak glucose dehydrogenase enzyme and eat fava beans, which are very nice actually, then they may have an episode of hemolytic anemia. Okay? And finally, finally, a second example of an idiosyncratic adverse effect, malignant hyperthermia, okay? So this is a very important genetic disorder that we're going to discuss again in the fifth term when we talk about some drugs, like, for example, inhalation anesthetics and succinylcholine that we mentioned before, we tend to trigger this type of crisis in susceptible individuals, okay? So this is where the genetics meets 
the pharmacology. So you need the genetic susceptibility, but until they give you one of these drugs, you don't know, you don't have it, you're not going to have a crisis. So this is an autosomal dominant trait, one in 12,000, and it's one of the main causes of death during anesthesia, okay, or rather due to anesthesia. So what's the syndrome? So how does the patient present? Well, tachycardia, hypertension, muscle rigidity, hyperthermia, hyperkalemia, and acidosis. Why do these things happen? This is a consequence of altered control of calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum in the fibers of the skeletal muscle. Okay? So in most cases, the problem is a mutation, a defect, a polymorphism in the ryanodine receptor gene, RYR1. You haven't seen this, have you? No, you see it here for the first time. Okay. So if you have this, I will explain what it is. If you have this abnormal receptor, when calcium comes out of the reticulum, comes uncontrolled, and you get too much calcium, and this triggers the crisis. Okay? What's the story? Imagine this is a skeletal uh, um, muscle fiber. So this is the sarcolemma, so the, the membrane around the fiber. And as you know, the fiber, these fibers have these T-tubules you know, that go deep into the cytosol. And the cytoplasmic reticulum, that's where most of the calcium is in the cell. When a, a muscle cell gets activated, calcium is released, and this calcium triggers the actin myosin uh, cross-bridging and contracts the muscle. So physiologically, what happens is this. You have the, the reticulum here full of calcium, and basically, you know, remember that the other day we mentioned the IP3 receptor. This is the equivalent in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And instead of being the IP3 receptor, it's the ryanodine receptor, but it's similar. And it's in close contact with this protein, which is a dihydropyridine receptor, which is actually a voltage sensor. So when the muscle cell is activated, you get a depolarization. So the depolarization comes into the uh, tubule, the DHPR, which is a voltage sensor, senses it and moves away. Hmm? And basically, it's like a cork that opens and then allows the calcium to leave through the radiant receptor and then go to meet actin and myosin, and you get the contraction of the muscle. That's physiologically how the muscle contracts. Okay? Now, when you have a mutation in this receptor, the release of calcium is brutal, it's massive, it's uncontrolled, okay? So too much calcium, you get too much contraction. Too much contraction, you generate heat. As you have this aerobic metabolism, you start producing CO2, you deplete the ATP and the O2, the oxygen pools in the cell. Eventually, the muscle has to switch to anaerobic metabolism, no? like when you're doing a sprint. And therefore, you start producing lactic acid that leads to acidosis. Eventually, you deplete the energy stores, so there's no more ATP. The muscle fibers start dying, 
and spilling their guts. So you get hyperkalemia and myoglobinuria. The myoglobinuria may clog your, your kidneys and your tubules, and then you get renal uh, failure as well. So this is basically the biochemistry behind this event, this crisis of the malignant hyperthermia. There is an antidote, a treatment, if they catch you on time, which is dantrolin, which non-specifically blocks the release of calcium from the reticulum. Of course, at the same time, you need to do you know, general measures to so reduce body temperature and restore the acid-base balance, so give you know, fluids and so on. So that's another example of a type of adverse effect that only happens in people who have this mutation in this receptor. Okay? So that's why it's called idiosyncratic adverse effects, because they are not predictable by the structure and function of the drug. In order to find out whether a patient who is going to undergo uh, surgery is susceptible, you need to do a test. The most common test is this caffeine, halothane, muscle contracture test. Okay, so you get a patient and you take a sample of the muscle from the thigh of the patient. Okay, make a little hole, take a little bit of the muscle. And then with the micro, you see here the bits of the muscle there. You know, you chop it in several stripes, several strips, so that you can do the experiment more than once. No? So then they put a strip on a muscle buff with a physiological solution, and you attach the strip to an electrical stimulator that twitches every 10 seconds. And every, every twitch, you know, every, every zap, you measure the contraction of the muscle. Okay? And you see here, you know, the little, each blip is 10 seconds, is a little, so this is the baseline, and every time you zap the muscle, then the muscle contracts a bit, and this is what you see here. Every 10 seconds, little blips, the contraction. And then you add halothane, which is one of the anesthetics known to trigger the malignant hyperthermia episode. And in a normal tissue, nothing basically should happen. Here you see a massive contraction of the muscle, indicating that this is a susceptible muscle, most likely due to a mutation in the rhyodin receptor. Confirmatory experiment, you add caffeine in high doses, which is also known to trigger this. And you see here, as you add more and more caffeine, the contraction keeps happening. Again, confirming that this is a susceptible muscle. So this patient should not undergo this type of anesthesia. Okay. Finally, see all the pictures that we saw before, they were all basically number of subjects versus, for example, activity of the enzyme or concentration of drugs. But more and more, people are looking at the genotype directly rather than at the phenotype. So they are actually uh, determining the genotype directly with DNA-based tests. And one of the things that came in the market a few years ago is the AmpliChip that basically allows you to determine whether you have polymorphisms of the 2D6 and the 2C19 
genotype. Hold your horses, we have one question. Okay, so tomorrow, remember we have the IMCQ number nine, okay? So we will do a review of most things we've seen. Immediately, shh, sit down, sit down, come, come, come. There's no fire, there's nothing, come, come. Tomorrow, uh, immediately after the IMCQ, I'm going to post the... IMCQ file plus two sets of practice questions. One, pharmacodynamics and the other, pharmacokinetics. Okay, so make sure you do them over the weekend so you are sharp for the exam which is coming very, very quickly. Okay? Have a nice evening.